Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. If you could ride along in a Humvee with one of America's most admired combat leaders of the last half century, somebody who helped build the all-volunteer force after the terrible tragedies of Vietnam, what would you hope to learn from him? We'll join just such a man, that very man, and absorb his wisdom in just a minute. But first, hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio, and a special tip of the cap to everybody enjoying today's time travel adventure via our YouTube channel. You can find me at historyauthor.com or across social media platforms. Over 250 interviews, by the way, there at historyauthor.com. You're sure to find one that's right for you. Plus, you can read my columns in the New York Sun to get my analysis of current events through the lens of all I've learned from these books on the shelves behind me. Please do check out my columns. Please do check out historyauthor.com. But I am not here to plug things. I am here to share somebody. We are welcoming aboard in our time machine for this episode. This is an internationally acclaimed author. He's a military historian and a U.S. Army veteran, Mike Guardia. You may remember him. We last caught up with Mike to discuss his book, Skybreak, the 58th Fighter Squadron in Desert Storm. That's the first Iraq war for those of you kids out there who weren't old enough to remember it. Mike returns to discuss his acclaimed bio of Lieutenant General Hal Moore. It's titled Hal Moore, A Soldier Once and Always. Mike Guardia served six years on active duty as an armor officer, and he got to know his subject, whose leadership you may recall from the Mel Gibson movie, We Were Soldiers, because Lieutenant General Moore invited Mike into his home and shared so much about his amazing life. Please do visit our guest at MikeGuardia.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. That last name is spelled G-U-A-R-D-I-A. Okay, now that we've arrived back at boot camp, let's join Mike Guardia and meet a transformative American military leader, Hal Moore, a soldier once and always. And here we are with Mike Guardia. He's going to chat with us about his book, Hal Moore, A Soldier Once and Always. Welcome back to the History Author Show, Mike. Hey, Dean. It's always great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on the program again. Well, the sign of a good author is one that once you read one of their books, you want to read all of their books. And that was certainly the case with you after we talked about Skybreak. And I've gotten to know you a little bit through Twitter and through our interview. So... Here you wrote a book about somebody that is fascinating, and I knew you'd bring really, really important talents to it, and also as a, a, a veteran yourself, and thank you for your service. I knew that you'd thank you. bring more than a journalist might bring, and not that we don't do great jobs, but I knew that this would be good on this interesting man. Now, most of us are familiar with him from the movie about how more we were soldiers once, starring uh -huh. Mel Gibson. And usually a book follows the film. In your case, the film starts you on this journey to writing Hal Moore, A Soldier Once and Always. So let's sure start there. Br bring us to the movie theater. What, what happens that, that brings you on the path to this great book? All righty. Okay, so let's see. We will wind the clocks all the way back to March 1st of 2002. And I was one of the lucky people in the audience to see We, we Were Soldiers on opening night. 
And I remember when I saw the trailer for the film, I said, wow, you know what? This looks like a really interesting war picture. And to that point, I had no idea who Howell Moore was. And I only had a very passing familiarity with, with, the, with the actual Battle of Iadrang and had kind of a macro concept of what the Central Highlands campaign was. But here I was, this 18-year-old boy who was sitting in the audience. And uh, from start to finish, Dean, I got to tell you, the film just absolutely blew me away because here was the first picture that I had ever seen to portray the Vietnam veteran in a positive light. Because when I think back to all of the Vietnam pictures that I had seen to that point, they all had one tie-in theme together. And it was that they all pretty much universally portrayed the Vietnam veteran in a, a completely negative light. I mean, it was always someone who was mentally unstable, someone who was malicious, and someone who I think by every conceivable standard was really a misfit in modern society. We all know the popular depictions of Lieutenant Dan, right? <laughs> so- um, yeah, Rambo. Right, <laughs> right. And here was the first picture that I had ever seen that didn't have any type of political agenda. It didn't have any type of social agenda. It was really just an honest and a very intimate portrayal of a lot of these stout-hearted men who went overseas to fight for their country and how they started off with a lot of popular support at home, but you saw a very, very quick erosion of that support as time went on. So, you know, you really had men who were fighting an uphill battle. They were fighting a war that they weren't necessarily trained to fight. And uh, I was just blown away by how well, um, how, how well Mel Gibson um, had uh, portrayed how more throughout the film. And uh, I was determined at that point to learn as much as I could about him. So it was following the film's release, um, and it was over those ensuing years that I, I read the book, We Were Soldiers Once and Young, and then I also read the follow-up to it, We Are Soldiers Still. And then I went looking for a full-on biography of Hal Moore himself, and I was shocked that there was none out there. I was like, somebody's had to have jumped on it by this point. I mean, this, this guy has done a lot. You know, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, footage that we saw in We Were Soldiers is just, you know, one little cross-section of a wider story arc of you know him influencing positive change and being a uh, and and also being a tremendous combat leader. So uh, when I found out that there was no biography out there on him, that's when I decided to pick up the task and start writing it. And I'm always happy when the right biographer finds the right subject because, to me, sometimes honestly, I'll have people pitch me a book and I don't think they did a great job with it. Or they just don't want to talk about it. They don't want to promote it. And I say, if you're going to write a book about somebody like Hal Moore, don't then go, don't write it just for other academics. Don't just say, well, I'm above promoting it and talking about it on a show like this. Go leave it in the woods because then nobody else can really write that book. It, the publisher's not going to want to publish another book right away on it. So I was very glad that you brought it up and that the movie concept is a thread that runs through today's interview because I found when I was when I was reading my questions in preparation for this conversation that I said, gee, I mentioned the films and movies in Hollywood a lot. And you you do that at the very beginning of how more a soldier once and always, as you said, you you show him and you had one picture that goes with something you were just saying, and that's Lieutenant General Moore's promotion to Brigadier General in 1968. He's surrounded oh, yeah. by his family. Mm -hmm. And you can't think of anything that's more unlike the portrayal in an Oliver Stone type 
just really a, a hateful two-dimensional film. Every every one of them, as you said, is some kind of broken, reprobate human being. And and this is carried even through to the current day. I'm sure you know veterans go for a job. And I have a friend who is an, an Iraq veteran. He says, I go on the job and they're worried. They ask me about PTSD and are you going to fall apart? And they're afraid I'm going to shoot up the office. And that's from films like this. So this picture of Hal Moore as a family man, you got to know his family, you got to know him. So tell us, who was he as a family man? And how does that debunk this idea that these fellows just never were able, any of them, to leave the war behind and they brought it home with them? Mm -hmm. He was an incredible family man. You know, I mean, at pretty, pretty much every turn, I mean, every interview that we had and every one of his associates and every one of his family members that I spoke with, uh, you know, they were all very quick to tell me that he does not fit any of the stereotypical archetypes of what you would expect in a military officer, you know, that he is incredibly kind-hearted, that uh, he, he is very family-oriented, and he saw his role as a commander in any one of the units that he led as a facilitator of sorts to make sure that all of the soldiers know that they are within a family environment and that the families they bring into the unit are co-equals in creating this 360-degree family environment. And you really see that start to shine through when uh, when when he when he took battalion command, because, you know, you see throughout the film and you also see throughout many of the literature that Halmore produced himself, that his wife, Julie, uh, took it upon herself to be a uh, to, to be a leader among the military spouses, you know, as a uh, as all, almost as a point of light to say, you know, hey, I know that being a military spouse is an incredibly rough job. And I know that there is a very good argument to be made that being a military spouse is actually the toughest job in the military. So you have an advocate in me as the commander's wife, and I will take it upon myself to make sure that we have babysitting co-ops, to make sure that we have support groups so that all of the women that are left behind when the soldiers go off to war uh, are, are adequately taken care of. And they have this support system in place among the fellow wives, particularly for any spouses who are, you know, who are, are miles away from their immediate family or whose other immediate family members have passed on. So, you know, you really get a sense of compassion and you get this overarching sense of a, a commitment to family values and to making sure that every one of his subordinates know that they are more than just a number, that they are more than just a name, that both he and Julie are taking an active role in their welfare and their overall developments as a human being. So, I mean, that just like flies in the face of, you know, all of these nasty Hollywood stereotypes of, you know, some some coked out guy who's who's, uh, you know, high on PTSD. And I remember that scene where he's afraid it's the telegram telling her her husband is dead. And the poor guy is just asking for an address and he's shaking and he's so sorry that he's he's, he's terrified her. Mm -hmm. And instead of, as you said, having one of those breakdowns and being just a stereotype, she says, let's go deliver them together. And she right. leaves her house, right? They, they go and they go door to door. And she is the one who helps comfort her fellow, her now widow, but her fellow military wives. And that's the kind of thing that you get from Hal Moore, from your biography here, because the, he is a real person and he, he rings true throughout your bio. So it's something that I think I think we're hungry for without realizing it, I guess you'd say. When you've seen a million movies and you've absorbed a million things from Vietnam, uh, there was a column I wrote, I think, in the Washington Times, and I said how 
when Peggy Noonan read one of the accounts that was later proven to be false. The guy had never been to Iraq. I think he'd, he'd washed out of basic training. And she said, when I was reading his account of atrocities and the whole media was running with it, and this is horrible. She said, I, I started to think this is not real. This is a, a Vietnam movie. This is a Hollywood version of what, of what our soldiers are like and what happens in war. And she was right. Her instincts were right. The guy turned out to be false. So I, I like to start with, with some, buddy who is going to be honest with me and you certainly are here as you as you were saying about the film you had no agenda so uh, that that's really a uh, that's really a compliment and you must feel so satisfied you were able to bring that picture of somebody especially since you got to know how more absolutely that is it, it will all, 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 always be one of the biggest honors of my life uh, Lieutenant General Moore, he graduates from West Point in 1945, and that's the year World that's War Two ends. And you mm -hmm. you can't imagine you can't imagine a time that's more of a of a dichotomy, right? Here we're talking about right. the stereotype of the Vietnam soldier is this mm -hmm. broken, uh, horrible person, maybe dangerous at that uh, at the worst, but broken at the very least. And then you have this Pax Americana. The United States stands athwart the world as a colossus after World War II. And that's when Hal Moore gets his start. So he sees a lot of change in his life. Also sees combat in the Korean War, which is often it called does. the Forgotten War because it's, you know, it's it's not doesn't have those big set pieces. I, I would argue it shouldn't be forgotten. So take us back to that beginning. How does being a soldier in the ranks in 1945? help Hal Moore develop into the leader he became? And how does he manage to change over the years so that he can adapt uh, through the Vietnam conflict when things do change right. so much? As you said, that's not the war they were trained to fight. Exactly. So he really went into it with, I can only say, a lot of mixed feelings because, you know, he was really counting on fighting in World War II and then is approaching his final year at the academy. Well, then all of a sudden the threat from the Axis powers goes away. So, you know, he comes into what is now qualitatively a post-war uh, post world, and he's saying to himself, well, gosh, you know, I really think that I've missed the big one. You know, I mean, here was this colossal enemy that we were all pretty much training to fight against, and it's gone out, it's gone out the window now. And, you know, now we have become an army of combat to an army of occupation, and I really don't think that that's something that the military is geared for. You know, I was, you know, I was really counting on fighting the Japanese. I was counting on fighting the Germans. And there's probably never going to be, there, there, there's probably never going to be another war for as, as long as I'm in uniform. You know, gosh, I've missed the big one. So he came into it with a little bit of disappointment. But at the same time, he was telling himself, well, I know what type of enemy that I was training to fight against. I uh, know the atrocities of which the Japanese were capable. And I know the fanaticism that a lot of those Japanese soldiers had. So there's probably a good chance that I would have been killed if I jumped into combat um, uh, against the Japanese. Because at that time, we were preparing for an invasion of the Japanese mainland. And the, uh, the everyday Japanese, for their part, they were also preparing for that. You had them, uh, you had them starting to dig trenches along the beaches of Honshu. And you even had Japanese civilians being issued pitchforks to attack uh, incoming paratroopers. So it was almost guaranteed to be a bloodbath. And he said, in that sense, I was a little bit relieved because, you know, I personally known upperclassmen who were killed in action. But now that we are no longer an army of combat and we are now an army of occupation, this gives me a front row seat to learn how to deal with all of the indigenous populations. 
This is really one of the first times in modern history that we go into a peacekeeping role because, you know, here we are, this, we have this enemy that has been defeated and we are now an army of occupation who is committed to building good ties with the local communities and who is committed to trying to rebuild uh, the people who just a few months ago we were calling our enemies. So for me, as Hal Moore, I see this as a crash course in how to build ties with all, with all, all the local citizens. This is going to help me when I get into Vietnam because this is a war where we're all about winning hearts and minds and we're trying to build good relationships with all of the local hamlets and try to uh, build these partnerships with the South Vietnamese as a counterfoil against the rising insurgency that we see with the Viet Cong. So that initial tour of duty that he has on the army of occupation, it is, uh, it, it, it is really incredible. And you see the downstream effects of it when he's in Vietnam because that gives him the, uh, it, it really gives him the solid intellectual foundation to uh, know how to be in equal parts a war fighter and also a man of the people. And then if you fast forward just five years later from 1945 into 1950, well, well you know, suddenly hey, it was uh, the war that we, that we never saw coming. It was the war that we certainly didn't expect, but everyone who missed out in combat in World War II now suddenly has a chance to prove themselves on the battlefields of North Korea. And even still, um, this is also something that shapes his outlook in Vietnam because it's not really a war in the traditional sense. It's called a police action. There's been no formal declaration of hostilities and you, know, you have a limited scope of what you're trying to accomplish. You're hamstrung by a lot of rules of engagement that tend to discourage initiative in, instead of promoting it. And he has to learn how to operate within this environment and has to say, okay, well, if uh, the higher echelon leadership doesn't quite have the fire in their belly for victory that other, you know, that, that, uh, uh, that our, our other political leaders and other military leaders have had, well, how can I affect positive change and how can I affect victory at, at the lowest level, at my level, and still come away with meeting as many tactical, uh, as, as many tactical objectives as I can? And uh, that is exactly what he pulled off in the, uh, in the battlefields of North Korea because he was saying to himself, okay, well, I have to stem the tide of communist aggression and I have to stop it in its tracks while still being mindful of, okay, well, this is where my operational area ends. Here's where it begins. I can't go beyond these perimeters and I can't do items X, Y, and Z, even though I think they would produce better downstream effects than the ABC list that, uh, that I've currently been given. So when you take those two factors together, the, the so-called limited war in Korea and the, uh, what we can only call a, a uh, Johnny on the spot peacekeeping mission in occupied Japan, those really set the intellectual foundations for him to become a very effective commander in Vietnam. You said something there in passing about how he's disappointed that he doesn't get to see the elephant is the way they called it in the great war in yeah. World War I, that he doesn't get to see combat. And that's another thing that jumps out at me because in these films that we grew up seeing, I'm, I'm older than you, but it, all those Vietnam movies, we've all seen the same ones, right? And I yeah. remember the first film I saw, and I think it was John Millianus's uh, Rough Riders, which I love. It's okay. a great, and listening to, the, listening to the commentary track is even funnier because he puts Germans yeah. in there and he says, well, you need to have Nazis, the Nazis in a, a war. And then he says, oh, they're not Nazis, right? They're just happen to be Germans. And there were no Germans in Cuba. There's a, there's a bunch <laughs> of mistakes like that in there that are really irritating, but it is a fun, very interesting movie. I would encourage everyone to check out Rough Riders. But yeah. it's 
there's a soldier there that gets wounded and they say, well, that's, that's uh, you're going home with that one. And he's disappointed. He says, Oh gosh, I, cause they wanted to show what he was made of. And that's something about how more, and it doesn't make him the warmonger, which is another trope from those Vietnam movies, but he wants to defend his country against enemies that are legitimately trying to destroy his country and are trying to get back to those women that are there on that base and try to kill them too. So it, mm-hmm. it's really a high calling that Hal Moore had, wasn't it? It sure was. It sure was, you know, and, and uh, that w- was actually one of the things that he, he kept tying back into through a lot of the interviews that I had with him. It's really a dichotomy of sorts because you hate war, yet you train for it. And even though you don't love it, you see it as a necessary evil because, you know, sometimes when the chips are down and the odds are stacked against you, you need to have a cadre of rough and ready men who are at all times ready to defend the call of freedom. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I love that about this book. Again, it's Hal Moore, a soldier once and always. You talk there about about Vietnam and World War II and the movie We Were Soldiers. And that that only covers that one battle in one war in this life that he has where where he has many duties. And I I wanted to ask you quickly, if a Hollywood studio came to you and said, hey, we want to do another movie of Lieutenant General Moore's life, what items spring to you? What set pieces? What part of his life would you like to see portrayed on the big screen, just as well as they were portrayed in that Mel Gibson movie? So we got a sense of here's a moment of time in his life. Right. Exactly. OK, so let's see if I had to boil it down to one set piece. I would try to focus on all of the major items that he did in trying to rebuild the army from the post-Vietnam malaise, because I think Hollywood has given a lot of attention to Vietnam proper. And the way that they've portrayed it has always been a little bit stilted. So I think, okay, well, if we take We Were Soldiers as a data point and we were to say, okay, well, here is the tipping point to where we start portraying the Vietnam veteran in what we can call a positive light now, you know, in, instead of what we saw in like Apocalypse Now and Full Metal Jacket and, uh, and, uh, and, and Platoon and all, all those other war films. Well, let's take it one step further and let's see how the army actually rebuilt itself from the darkest days of Vietnam. Let's see what happened in 1973 onwards, where you had the army that was collectively at its lowest ebb, and you had a you you, you had this lingering public backlash against uh, against the military, and you also had uh, you also had a, a, a survey of public confidence in where in where the army ranked only above sanitation workers in you know in um, in a, in a in a, uh, in a survey that showed how Americans collectively uh, thought of their institutions. So if we take that as a foundation, let's go ahead and make a follow-on movie about Hal Moore to say how he did everything he could to reverse those trends, how he said, okay, well, if we have, if we have a country that, that uh, you know, by every conceivable standard hates the military, one, how do we attract new recruits given that we're going to an all-volunteer force how do we make the army marketable and how do we make the individual soldier proud? Because if he's coming into the military, he wants to be in the best shape of his life. He wants to have confidence in what he's doing. He wants to have confidence in his leadership. And he also wants to have confidence that when he, you know, when he goes home on leave or when he travels out and about, if people know he's a soldier, he's not going to be met with that hostility. So that movie would include 
all of the little bits and pieces that Hal Moore did to essentially make that a reality. How he, how he revamped the training programs, how when he was the base commander at Fort Ord, he went out of his way to make, uh, to, to make these long lasting community programs to, uh, build, to build good relationships with people who were you know, in the cities of San Francisco and all of the surrounding communities that make up that Fort Ord military community. So uh, that I think would really tie in with the broader theme of, you know, hey, we want to try to portray the Vietnam veteran in a positive light, but let's also see how the military rebuilt itself and recalibrated itself and turned, you know, into the turn, how it turned from the post-Vietnam rabble into the high-tech professional fighting force that won Desert Storm in Panama. Also worth reflecting on the other movie portrayals. And as you're talking about how more and about that post-Vietnam period, I'm thinking the only movie to really cast the new army, which is a cover of one of the fake uh, fake Newsweek covers, magazine covers, was Stripes. And it's a comedy, right? right? It's starring right. Bill Murray, who's nobody's idea of a soldier, right? But he's right. the only one, that's the only film that portrayed this transition to the all-volunteer force. So if anyone from Hollywood's mm. listening out there, here we go. You have to give Mike Guardia a call about how more, <laughs> because it is, it is hard. It's not easy. It doesn't just become the military that you're speaking about there of the 1980s where they reinvest and and the the ronald reagan military we associate with that mm -hmm. and with the destruction of of foes it, it is a mm -hmm. tough transition so he has a front row seat in this al Moore. he sure does he sure does and uh i i really got to hand it to him i'm gonna have to credit him with so much that he did to revamp the army and uh you know as i was going through all of the documents and even a lot of the personal papers uh, that he had, you know, I was able to uh, I was able to trace a lot of different points of instruction that I had been through as a soldier to the ideas that he put down on paper. And you know, so it, it's uh, it, it it for me was uh, incredibly satisfying. And in a way, it was also coming full circle to see that uh, a lot of the training experiences that I had as a brand new soldier were things that I could directly trace to Hal Moore and. A lot of the concepts that he said, okay, well, if we're going to rebuild the army. Here's what we got to do. We got to start with these. The whole thing is incredible. Your whole book. I would encourage people to pick it up because uh, we can only touch the service. Hopefully we're wetting their appetites. But you, you look at what he accomplished in those years and how much change there really was. Another big change is we have the desegregation of the military on General Eisenhower's right. advice. And then President Truman carries that out. And there's this great moment, speaking of set piece battles, it, I think everyone yeah. can picture this. There's that moment in May of 1970, there are race riots breaking out in a U.S. Army base right. in South Korea. And they they call Hal Moore, which is just a great moment. There, there's a beginning of your film, right? And yeah. I wanted to ask you, tell everybody, what's his rank at the time? Why do they send him to deal with this problem, with this race riot? And then the great detail is, who does he find hiding under a desk when he arrives there amid all this chaos and takes charge? Oh man. And Dean, I got to tell you, this is something that is like straight out of a movie script. So there you go. If, if we were, were, were to wind the clocks back to May of 1970. Um, so here's how he is at, at the time a one-star general and he's on the two-star list and he's working at the, uh, he's working at the eighth army headquarters in Korea and at this time, uh, he already has a solid reputation behind him. I mean, all of the stuff that he did in Vietnam, it has really become the stuff of legend within the army. He is well known throughout all the military circles. Uh, you know, people 
see him as a go-to guy. If you have a problem and you want it fixed, you got to try to find Hal Moore. And if you don't have Hal Moore, try to find somebody who's close to him because this guy can deconstruct a problem and he has the velvet glove. He can motivate people in ways that many other leaders cannot. Uh, so, so uh, you know, at, at the time, he's a, uh, he's a one-star on the two-star list. Uh, he's working in the G3 operations cell uh, for the 8th Army. And uh, he has a notoriously tough boss. His name is General John Michaelis, who, uh, you know, had, uh, you know, who I, I think in, in, in many ways was the modern day incarnation of Patton because, you know, he was such a hard charging SOB. Um, uh, he was known for having exacting standards and he would not think twice to relieve anybody of duty if they even made the slightest mistake. So uh, he had a tremendous amount of confidence in how Moore and the fact that Moore lasted as long under General Michaelis as he did, I think is just amazing. But, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it, it's this night in May where, uh, you know, all the phones at the operations center start blowing up because apparently there's, uh, you know, some, some big conflict that's happening up along the DMZ. And, uh, you know, at first they say, okay, well, all these phones are blowing up. They wouldn't be coming in with all these urgent messages and we wouldn't be seeing these things across the teletype if there wasn't something bad happening. And uh, there's this muted sense like, oh, my God, is this the start of the second Korean War? Are, you know, are, uh, are these North Korean agents starting to infiltrate the DMZ? What is going on? But then they start to get a bigger picture and they say, OK, uh, it's an enemy of an entirely different kind. Racism is rearing its ugly head um, around all, uh, 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 across all of these camps that are scattered along the DMZ. You have these race riots. You have you know, this major brawl that is erupting um, amongst black soldiers, white soldiers, and Hispanic soldiers. And it is going all throughout the night. And uh, it is getting so bad that the local MPs at all of these army camps are having to call on the Korean police for help. You know, you have soldiers getting knifed, you have soldiers getting beaten up, you have soldiers getting thrown out of second story windows. And, you know, I mean, and uh, if that's not bad enough, you have millions of dollars in property damage. You have, uh, you have, uh, you have mess halls and libraries that are going up in flames. You know, people are setting cars on fire. It's and every stereotype. Yeah, there you go. Every stereotype yeah. you're getting there. I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you. <laughs> no, 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 that's good. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it is like every stereotypical image of all of the urban riots that we see in Hollywood films. And, uh, you know, and it is just an all out mess. So we fast forward to like about five or six in the morning. Um, where Hal Moore has had a very unpleasant night. He's going through all these reports. He's feeling all these calls. And then he gets a call on the swap box, you know, from the secretary that says General Michaelis would like to see you. And Hal Moore doesn't think anything of it at the time. He's like, okay, maybe the boss wants a sit rep. Maybe he wants an update. So I'm going to go in and I'm going to tell him exactly what is happening and how I understand it. So he, he reports to Michaelis and Michaelis tells him probably the last thing that he expected to hear. He says, Moore, we got problems uh, up there on the DMZ. We got problems in the 7th Division. I've already relieved the division commander. So uh, what I need you to do is very simple. And he says this, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll apologize ahead of time because I'm just using this as a quote. There's a little bit of profanity in here. But he says, Moore, I need you to get up there, and I need you to straighten out that goddamn division. <laughs> and so Moore, you know, very dutifully, he says, yes, sir. I, I, I would be glad to. When do I leave? And Michaela says, in half an hour, there's already a Jeep outside waiting for you. <laughs> so, so, yes, uh, with, within the span of only 30 minutes, Moore gathers up as many items as he can, goes out to the Jeep that's waiting for him. He drives up to the DMZ. Buildings are still on fire. 
you know, there's blood all over the streets. He goes up to the uh, he goes up to the command office where the seventh ID commander is, and uh, oddly enough, the um, commander of the seventh infantry division, which is the uh, division that's stationed there along the DMZ, that division commander is no joke hiding under his desk, <laughs> hiding under his desk, and Moore just very <laughs> deftly goes in. You know, he he looks around for a little bit. He's like, okay, is the uh, is the division commander here? But he hears some rustling under the desk. Moore goes around, uh, goes around the, uh, goes around the desk front, looks underneath the desk, and says, "Hi, I'm Hal Moore. I'm your replacement. You out." <laughs> and yeah, that is the start of uh, of um, where Hal Moore essentially becomes the savior of the Seventh Infantry Division. Uh, he takes over command, and uh, he just turns that division around like it was nobody's business. Within one year, all of the uh, all, all the dis- all of the uh, racial and disciplinary problems had essentially disappeared, and uh, and you know and and also to top that off, they uh, they they won a number of, um, of of awards for their readiness, and uh, you know also for uh, also for uh, also for their professionalism, and it was just uh, an, an incredible transformation that started with Hal Moore taking command from a commander who was hiding under his desk. Not even in wartime, just just right. from uh, his own men misbehaving. <laughs> You're enjoying my conversation with Mike Guardia. He's the author of Hal Moore, A Soldier Once and Always. It is a great story with many turnarounds, just like that one in it. And who doesn't love that kind of, think of the movie Stand By Me. Think of all those great inspiring right. stories where you have people who are beset by infighting, who are never going to, going to win the big game. And that's what you're going to find. How Moore was the coach that's able to do that. He does what, what happens in Miracle, right? Turns around the, the U.S. team, takes a bunch of amateurs and beats those Reds, beats the Red Army. That's what you get from this great biography. You can visit our guest at MikeGuardia.com or find him on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Armchair General writes of the book, Moore, one of America's most distinguished soldiers, granted Guardia numerous interviews and allowed the author unrestricted access to his collected letters, documents, and never-before-published photographs to produce this first-ever fully illustrated biography. Mike, folks watching via YouTube are seeing some of those photographs that you were kind enough to share with me after Hal Moore's family was kind enough to share them with you. You walk in there they're so generous with documents and pictures i imagine it was it was such a pleasant surprise for you as an author but also a little overwhelming and then you have to meet the man himself and you are i'm sure in awe of him as anybody would have been as you said one of the great honors of your life right Mm -hmm. what's it like when you sit down with him the first time you you tell him here's little me i'm writing a book on you sir and you have a job to do, but you're also still probably that that young kid who saw that movie and and, and is blown away by the guy. So how how do you do that? How do you approach him and go about writing how more a soldier once and always with the help of this titanic figure? How do, and how does he sense in you? I mean, a leader is a leader, right? A soldier once and right. always. He knows how to help you do your job as well, which is a, a great help for for a journalist or for an author. So how does that happen? How how do those meetings go? Oh, wow. It, it was an incredible experience. And it was also a little bit of a nerve wracking process. See, um, I, I actually got the idea to start writing the book um, where about the spring of 2009. And um, at this particular point, Hal Moore, he, he uh, of course, was still with us. And it was with 
a little bit of trepidation that I was approaching the project because I was telling myself, okay, here I am. I am a brand new second lieutenant on active duty, and I have been bitten by the good idea theory to write this book about Hal Moore, who is a retired three-star general. So this was also right around the time that uh, I was completing work on my first book, which was called American Guerrilla. So I said, okay, well, now that I have one book down, I really, really want to dive into this biography on Hal Moore, but how do I approach the man? You know, so what I did is I was, I was able to get his contact information, found out that he lived in Auburn, Alabama. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, he's probably had quite a few people approach him for the idea of a biography. And, you know, he's probably, uh, you know, he's probably, um, he's, he's probably done a lot of interviews and, and may, many other venues. Um, what is it that is going to separate me from the crowd? So what I did is first I approached him with a uh, I, I first approached him with a letter that uh, I sent via certified mail, no less. You know, probably uh, probably the mark of a uh, misguided overachiever there, but I wanted to make sure he got it. And uh, you know, and it w- was throughout that letter that I said, "Hi, my name is Second Lieutenant Guardia, and I uh, you know I, I would really like the opportunity to write a book about you." As a young officer myself, uh, I've been inspired by a lot of your achievements. Um, I, I've recently finished my first manuscript, and I would very much love to dive into a, a potential biography on you. And I sent that letter, and I think about two weeks went by, did not hear from him at all. So I decided that I was going to push my luck a little bit and actually call him on the phone, which you know, w- w- which I did. So he answers, you know, hello, and. I introduced myself. I said, hi, sir. I am Lieutenant Guardia. I was the young man who wrote you the letter a few weeks ago. Uh, is there any chance that uh, you know, I, I, could, um, I could have the opportunity to write your biography? And the first time he told me no. He, he said it wow. <laughs> in what I can only describe as the most diplomatic manner. You know, he said, well, That's son, nice. um, yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate your kind words, but you know, at this point in my life, I really don't take visitors anymore. But uh, if you want to write anything about me, you sure can. Uh, and uh, you know, if uh, you need any bits of information, I'll go ahead and send you some stuff. Well, I may have been a young, know-nothing lieutenant, but even at that point, I was still smart enough to read between the lines. It was his very nice way of saying, "Hey, kid, get lost." <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> I let the matter drop for about a year and a half. And then um, at around that time, I was on orders to go to Fort Bliss in Texas. And for some reason, and I still can't pinpoint why, uh, there was this nagging voice in the back of my head that said, Mike, you have to try one more time. Just try again, you know, try and approach him a second time. And then if he says no, then if he says no, then, you know, fine. So um, what I ended up doing at that point was now, now that my first book had come out, I had, uh, you know, I, I took a copy of that first book. I, I sent him another letter that included the book. And I said, hi, you know, hi, sir, it's me. I'm not sure if you remember, but we spoke about a year and a half ago. And uh, that, that correspondence that I sent, again, uh, went unanswered for about two weeks. And uh, then I made the brave decision to call him again. And now I have to emphasize for everyone in the audience that this is an army lieutenant who is calling a three-star general. Typically when you do that, you're asking for trouble. <laughs> and I have expected to get the butt chewing of a lifetime, but um, his response when I called him was a 180 degree turn. He said, yeah, Mike, I, I got your letter. 
what time do you want to come over? <laughs> and I said, <laughs> wow. well, sir, I, I, I am actually not in Alabama right now. You know, he said, oh, okay, well, that's no problem. So what time do you want to come visit me? I said, well, sir, uh, you know, as uh, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I, I will, I will accommodate any time in your schedule. And he said, yeah, sure. Okay. Well, you know, anytime you want to come visit me, Mike, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to help you. I was like, I didn't ask questions. I didn't ask him why. I didn't know what changed his mind. I didn't care. I was just like, man, I am going to spike that ball into the end zone. So what I, uh, so what um, I decided to do at that point, now that uh, I, I finally, I finally had that, um, I finally had that window of opportunity. I, uh, I really wanted to uh, really wanted to make contact with his family. And this was fortuitous because um, how Moore's, how Moore's um, uh, two of his sons are, 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 um, are, are army officers. They're, they're of course retired now, but his youngest son, Dave was uh, still on active duty at the time. And, uh, and uh, his, his, his son, Dave was a full bird colonel on active duty. And uh, being that he was an active duty officer, as, uh, as I was, I was able to, uh, to look up his military email in the global address system and send him a note. And I introduced myself and said, you know, there's a sir, my name is Lieutenant Guardia. I've, I've recently been in contact with your father. I've already written one book. I would very much like to do a biography on your dad. And he emails me back that same day. He says, Mike, I see you're at Fort Bliss. I'm at Fort Bliss right now. On, on a temporary assignment. Let's meet up tonight. Let's talk about this. I'm just thinking, man, <laughs> talk about all the stars and planets aligning right at the same time. So I met up with Dave Moore that night you know, out, out, out in El Paso. And uh, yeah, we spent, uh, I think we spent a good two or three hours talking about how we would facilitate the biography and how we would facilitate actually meeting him. And uh, it was just beyond incredible um, because it was about six months after that the initial meeting with Dave Moore that, you know, I, I was able to take leave from the army to travel out to Auburn, Alabama. And, uh, you know, in, and uh, in, in conjunction with his youngest son, you know, set up a series of interviews. And, uh, you know, I, I got to spend probably a good week or so with Hal Moore at his home in Auburn, you know, just going through pictures, going through documents and uh, just hearing all the incredible stories that he had to share. So uh, it was uh, just a remarkable experience, one that uh, I think I, I can attribute to a little bit of perseverance and also a little bit of luck. But, uh, you know, in all the sit down interviews that I had with him, you know, uh, even though I was uh, awestruck throughout every single one of those interviews, you know, what really struck me the most, I think, was just how incredibly down to earth he is, you know, that you see, you know, this man who is a great leader, who, uh, you know, is able to deconstruct problems like pretty much no one you've ever met is still at the end of the day, just a regular guy like you and me. And, uh, you know, is one who could very easily be your next door neighbor and uh, one who is just all around pleasant to talk to, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, you know, being able to get along with Al Moore, I have to say it's almost as easy as breathing. That's great. It's such a testimony to him. It's such a blessing, not just for you as an author, but also for your readers because I want to stress to people listening who maybe aren't interested in conflict, maybe don't have anybody in their family that that served in, in living memory, because now we do have that all volunteer force. It's not like it was after the Great War or certainly the Civil War or World War II, where everybody had somebody in their family who was either a veteran or unfortunately was lost in the war. You mm -hmm. describe Lieutenant General Halmore's leadership in your book, Halmore, as soldier once and always. And that's the reason that 
I say this book has applications for everybody, whatever field you're in. And that's why we read history, really, right? We, we don't just read it necessarily for stories. We read it whether we know it or not, because we want to learn a little bit from that and be able to apply those lessons. There are so many lessons in Halmore's life, and you lecture on those, and you talk about his leadership style, the way he was able to put you at ease. You, you didn't even realize, I'm sure, like, well, you probably were aware of it, but still, you meet somebody like that, they're leading you, even if it's not, hey, go storm that, that bunker, they're, they're leading right. you because they want, they want you to, they want to accomplish their ends as well. They want to bring out the best in you. It's an instinct for somebody like Hal Moore. So it, I wanted to ask you if there's, if there's the moment that demonstrates how you walk into a situation and command it, a lesson that you will hopefully be giving people here. I'm sure people will absorb from reading your biography, but also from when you lecture about Hal Moore. What is that moment or what are those moments if there's more than one that when he walks into a situation and finds a general cowering under his desk, which is not too far off from what a lot of us might face when we enter a new job, uh, how, what are those moments? What are those lessons from Al Moore briefly that people will absorb from your book and from your lectures on Al Moore? Sure. So let's see. Um, I think there are pro probably two moments that I can pinpoint. Um, one is when he was a brand new second lieutenant and he and when he was taking over his first platoon, because here you have 1945, here is a, a young, fresh-faced 23-year-old lieutenant who is fresh out of West Point, who has never seen combat a day in his life, and he's going over to occupy Japan. He's taking over a platoon of, uh, of, of these hardcore paratroopers, many of whom have, have seen combat throughout a lot of the worst meat grinder battles in the Pacific, and uh, they have they have combat experience that is just head and shoulders over anything that this over anything that this young lieutenant can imagine. And uh, you know he has to stand in front of these men, you know, who have won purple hearts, who have won silver stars, who are wearing the uh, the coveted wreaths of the combat infantryman badge, and he has to gain their respect. He has to go in front of these distinguished combat veterans and say, you know, hi, I am 23-year-old so-and-so, fresh out of West Point, and I am your leader. I have to tell you what to do, you know? And, uh, you know, to be in that kind of situation has got to be daunting as all get out, because you're like, how are these guys going to take me seriously, you know? So um, how, how, how he handled that was, you know, just his overall, you know, his overall mentality of when you're in charge, take charge, but always treat your subordinates with respect and dignity. Because, you know, how you build rapport with those who you are in charge of is if you treat them is, is if you treat them like an individual and you take an active interest in the things that you know are important to them and you see and uh, you see them as assets instead of liabilities and you let them know that as that as their leader, that uh, you are 100 percent vested in their safety and that you care about their development and that you also care about their welfare and that you do it without being overbearing and, and without being intrusive. Because one of the themes that ties all of Halmore's leadership lessons together is that you don't motivate people by insulting them. You don't motivate them by being overbearing and uh, you know, trying to be that forceful personality you know, who rules through fear and metrics and intimidation. And uh, you know, that, is, uh, that is something that he carries forward when he takes over his unit in middle of the Korean War, because, you know, here he already has, 
quite a bit of time of service under his belt, but he is taking over a unit that is no joke in the middle of combat. And not only that, he is also taking over a unit that has been suffering from very low morale for quite a long time. And he, he said years later that if I have the choice between taking over a good unit or taking over a bad unit, I will take over the bad unit every time because they have nowhere else to go but up. And he took it as a uh, he took it as a clarion call and uh, even as a personal calling to try and take units that were described as misfits and turn them around and through you know and and, and through that velvet glove leadership you know build their confidence build their uh, build build their capabilities and take them from a and then take them from a poor performing unit to a high performing unit you know. I, I guess it's pretty much the same setup as the bad news bears, except, you know, we're putting it in a military context. So, yeah. The universal human truths. That, that's what we're going to get here. And that's another stereotype that smashed that this idea of the screaming general, there was a story yeah. recently of a world war II veteran. And he talked about meeting Patton. He was a medic and he's driving along and he's in a Jeep and he has the, the, the gun is in front of him. And he says, well, so Patton stops and says, what the heck are you doing with, with the gun? And he, he kind of chews him out and tells him he shouldn't be there because this right. is this is a, a combat role. And then he turns around Patton and he says to him, if you came under attack, what would you do? What, what would you have done with that gun? And he says, I would have fired it at the enemy, sir. And Patton says, job well done. So he says, okay, here, after he chewed, chewed up a yeah. hunk out of my ass, as you said, then Patton knew. And I think that's something we, we forget about these generals. We, we have those two views. How Moore is certainly a guy who had that nuance. Yeah, yeah he sure did. And man, he had it in spades because, uh, you know, he, he, knew that, uh, he knew that you attract more flies with honey than with vinegar. I want to close with a final question, and that's about How Moore passing away in 2017. And mm -hmm. he does reconcile with the former enemy, which is another thing that we don't associate with the Vietnam War. In this case, the, the Vietnamese, he, he reconciles with them. And th those are just great moments to, to read about in any soldier's story. It makes us feel good about our common humanity. Yeah. And he, he passes away in 2017. He's just a few days shy of his 95th birthday. We just marked his 100th birthday. To close, I, I'd like you to make your pitch to everybody at home. One one final pitch, I guess. I've been I've been promoting your book, and I think it's great. And people are going to have that little voice, hopefully, in the back of their head that sounds like me, telling them, "Go buy Hal Moore, Soldier Once and Always," and you will not be disappointed. But I wanted to ask you, as the author, because you you knew the man, you really worked with him on this book. Why should readers, whoever they are, whether they're into the war or not, whether they're in the military or have a military family or not? pick up your biography and meet this man so that they can be enriched by it? Well, I think any number of readers out there would really enjoy hearing a story about a man who was probably from the most humble of beginnings and how he took a, uh, you know, how he, he took that humble upbringing and all of the, uh, you know, and all of the important, uh, all the important life lessons and, uh, you know, all, all the important mannerisms that he learned from growing up in small town America, and he he kept a lot of those uh, he kept a lot of those principles true to himself, and how he was able to, and how and uh, you know how he was able to achieve success in the military, and how he was able to be a leader at um, at uh, multiple echelons and inspire people while not compromising those same hometown values that were instilled in him from a very early age. So I think in the broadest stroke that I can make, 
is that uh, how more a soldier wants and always is the uh, story of the um, of the uh, American everyman who rises to the occasion and uh, affects positive change wherever he goes and is able to achieve victory and is able to inspire people despite you know the fact that he occasionally has to work in a not so friendly political environment because I think one of the true measures of a man is you know how he can inspire people and how long after he's gone, people remember their interactions with him as being pleasant and being, hey, this is a man who I could always count on. And this is a man who inspired me or taught me something that led me to do something great in my own life. So here you have that, uh, that little, that little uh, shining point of humanity that uh, we really wish we could, that, uh, we, we wish we could see in everybody. Well, Mike Guardia, people can't see that here in your book, How More a Soldier Once and Always, something we can all aspire to. Thank you for introducing me today to this great American hero, genuine American hero, and for giving me the chance to share him with everybody out there, give them the opportunity to get to know him, especially if you're a young person out there. If you're young, like Mike was when he first saw that movie, We Were Soldiers, and you say, this kid doesn't have a lot of direction. He could use a role model, or she could use a role model. This is a great book to put into a young person's hand, and they will definitely enjoy it. You were fortunate enough to have gotten to know him. Thanks so much, Mike, for making me feel like I got to know how more too. I hope everyone will pick up a copy of your book and get to know how more themselves. Absolutely, Dean. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. Always a pleasure. Again, the book is How More, A Soldier Once and Always. And as always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode by buying a book through us you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. Huge thanks to Mike Guardia for joining us and for introducing everybody to a soldier who may have faded away, but who left behind enduring lessons on leadership and life that still have the power to inspire us today and push us towards delivering our very best. Please do visit our guest at MikeGuardia.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please do subscribe at our YouTube channel for future journeys in the Wayback Machine. You can find me on social media as well, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Find my previous conversation with Mike Guardia at HistoryAuthor.com or on YouTube. That was a video interview about that book, Skybreak on Desert Storm and the pilots who were the tip of the spear of liberating Kuwait. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of Mike Guardia, thanks so much for time traveling with us today. And have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the 